1: That's amazon.com slash news ad-free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Go in, let me
0: go for it,
2: Afternoon. Yeah. What, no, I'm going to miss, i know i success. Come follow me. All right. Away. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, thanks.
3: We're in Jamaica, in Hanover, a small region that rounds off the northwest of the island. As we mount the long winding roads through deep green valleys among the bamboo and ackee trees, we pass small plot farms and roadside shops. We're looking for a former sugar plantation called Success. On my phone screen, I have a map up. It's from 1804. Tracing the roads and rivers of Hanover, I'm trying to match the location of where success once was to a Google map from today.
2: Afternoon. I'm on my way to success. Is the right road? Yes, here and there. All right, thank you. All right, I will be
0: successful. All okay. right, uh, thank you.
3: We have no idea what remains of success, possibly nothing. But eventually, we find a village that appears to be in the same place. It isn't long before Google Maps fails us. Between me, producer Courtney, and driver Bandy, and a lot of directions from people we pass, we pull into a one-road village that we hope is it. There's no signs to say we're in the right place, though the local school has a motto painted on its board. Hard work is the key to success. But this is it. Maybe I'll just... Jump out and ask these people if this is success. Um, The Guardian has spent the past year exploring Britain's relationship to the enslavement of African people through an investigation into the paper's own links to transatlantic slavery. In the first episode of this series, we learnt about the founder John Edward Taylor and his financial backers who funded the creation of the paper in 1821. Through Dr. Cassandra Gupta's research, we learned that nine of those original funders and Taylor were connected to transatlantic slavery through cotton. They'd made money through Manchester's textile industry, which relied on raw cotton picked by enslaved Africans. For one of those funders, the connection wasn't just through cotton.
4: So when I was conducting research into the 11 funders of the Manchester Guardian and their links with slavery. George Phillips was one of the first, you know, associates of Taylor that I really looked into. His name popped up, you know, in terms of associating with the Success Plantation in Hanover, Jamaica. And right there in the description, they have a funder of Manchester Guardian. Cassie had discovered that Sir George Phillips, one of Manchester's wealthiest cotton lords,
3: the so-called Cotton King... And one of the men who directly funded the Guardian had also co-owned a sugar plantation in Jamaica.
4: That plantation was called Success. And I should mention that for the particular year that the Manchester Guardian was founded, in 1821, there was 122 enslaved people registered to that plantation. Jamaica
3: was once the so-called jewel in the crown of the British Empire and at one time, a centre of the British slave trade. Landing at the airport, you're greeted by Jamaica's national heroes, a conscious celebration of figures of resistance. You can see the legacies of transatlantic slavery all over the island, in the names of places, in the names of people, and it's still shaping so many industries, including, as I would learn, farming and tourism. The ghosts of this history are everywhere. From The Guardian, I'm Maya Wolf Robinson, and you're listening to Cotton Capital, Episode 2 The Meaning of Success. Yes, yeah,
5: man. is our music, at, man, you know. <laughs> A
3: few days into our trip, Courtney and I drove across the island to the capital, Kingston. We were looking for the home of Dr. Esther Figaro, which was on the outskirts of the city at the foot of the Blue Mountains. It was getting dark as we arrived, which meant the mosquitoes were out. Dr. Figaro was moving, so it started to give away her furniture, and so was apologetic that the only chair she had for me was the one usually designated for the cats.
0: Just do a test, would you mind speaking
3: to Um, Hi, we're here in Esther's cottage. She said this chair was uncomfortable, but I'm finding it absolutely fine. chair, what's wrong with you? Dr. Figaro is a well-known filmmaker and writer. Her work focuses on contemporary Jamaica, particularly the environment and unsustainable tourism. But the way that she explains what's happening now is by looking at what came before. Behind her was a poster for one of her documentaries, called Jamaica for Sale.
6: So in Jamaica, there is, you know, the tourist slogan, and we say, what was the meaning of the word Jamaica? Um, which was an Arawak word, which under the Spanish becomes something like Jamaica. It means something of like land of many, you know, forests and rivers, which we translate as land of wood and water because it's, you know, it's poetic, right? Right. From that moment when someone came and looked at this and thought, hmm, trees, I can make money from trees. Or let's cut all of that down and let's plant sugarcane," From that calculation of I can make profit from this, that of course continues.
3: Those trees, that water, were named by the Tainos, the indigenous people of Jamaica. They were almost entirely wiped out by the Spanish, the first colonizers attracted to the richness of Jamaica. In 1655, the island was then seized by the British. And the money that was made that went to the crown by the
6: pirates and the privateers and whatnot that were actually financed to go out and do this, that then led to, of course, the money that went to the plantations and then from that the money that went to industrialization And from that, all the great institutions that make British people feel superior, right? So Jamaica was central, central
3: to the wealth of England. Many of the enslaved Africans who were forced to work on the success plantation would have arrived into the bay in Lucy, Hanover. They were then transported up into the hills and onto plantations, where they would have been forced to grow cash crops. Sugarcane was the king of these crops, and that was what was grown on success. The cane was crushed, juiced, crystallised and distilled before being hauled back down to Lucy in big sacks of sugar known as hogsheads or in bottles of rum and vinegar, all bound for England. The African people whose work built this wealth were largely the Fante and Ashanti people from the Akan regions of Ghana, as well as the Igbo, Ibibio, and Yoruba people from Nigeria, Benin, and Togo.
6: You have people who are trafficked and enslaved, stolen, moved, taken away, um, the actual genocide of the loss of life, but then also the very cruel and intentional attempts at rupture of continuity, right? Separating families, banning languages, cultural practices, all of the kind of surveillance, physical harm, brutality, the kind of violence that goes into keeping the system
3: going. The forces that went into keeping that system going also ensured that we rarely heard about it from the perspectives of those enduring it. The people maintaining those systems did their best to keep the enslaved from being able to read and write. For the most part, their experiences have been purposefully written out of history. While Cassie could find whole papers dedicated to the career of Sir George Phillips, finding details on the day-to-day lives of the people forced to work on his plantation was much harder. In her research for The Guardian, what little she could find about those on the success plantation was from so-called slave registers, and adverts to find enslaved people who had escaped. So we asked Jamaican writer and historical researcher, Zakia Mackenzie, to take what she had learned looking at the almost 1,000 plantations that used to exist in Jamaica, and imagine what life might have been like for someone living on success. King George I
7: of England formally named the parish in 1725 after his German family line, the House of Hanover. Success is the name of the plantation I born, slave, and die on in Hanover. The name might seem ironic, Success, a slave plantation, but it was indeed successful. Just not for any of us black folks who made it so. Sugarcane is what we grow. There was nary another crop planted in Jamaica with as much importance at the time. Hip hip hooray for sugarcane monoculture. During the 17th and 18th centuries, Europe's taste for exotic things turned into a sugar addiction fed by dealers who were also enslavers in the Caribbean. Yes, sugarcane is what the masters profited from. So, sugarcane made the slave system worth their while. I was a water carrier. I fetch water and carry all over. From field, to workhouse, to cook shop, to big house, in the hot of day or sting of rain. Slave master only give you such a job if you're disabled. Like me, I lost one arm in the sugar mill as a child so they don't see it fit to send me to the field. But I wasn't going to waste. No, nothing was wasted. Did you ever hear the saying, time is money? Well, you would see it in action at success. Slave economy is where the tools to calculate the rate of production gained scientific importance. The pocket watch, the ledger book, the clock, the daily work logs, all of this was used to squeeze every drop of energy out of the enslaved, everything in aid of sugar production. The only time we don't feel like slaves is on our little plots.
3: The plot. This was a piece of land on the fringes of the plantation, a place where the enslaved grew their own food. Even today, who has accessed the land still shapes life on the island. and. There's one person who spent decades studying this, Professor Veront Satchel.
2: My name is Veront Satchel. I am Professor Emeritus, Economic History and Landscape History at the University of the West Indies.
3: Professor Satchel literally wrote the book on plots. It's called From Plot to Plantation, Land Transactions in Jamaica, 1866 to 1900. The plot did not belong to the enslaved.
2: But what they grown it belonged to the enslaved. And the planters left them alone, did not bother them at all. They were free to plant what they wanted and free to dispose of it. And the proceeds were theirs.
3: To be clear, this wasn't an act of generosity. Not only did the enslavers create a dependency to the land... But they also absolved themselves the responsibility of feeding their workforce by having the enslaved grow their own crops.
2: And I want to tell you that they did such a great job that they made the country self-sufficient in food, that they were able to not just provide food at subsistence level, but to produce a surplus for the market.
3: Many of the markets developed out of enslaved people's provision grounds, or plots, still exist across the island today. Zakia imagines it was a place that offered momentary relief. It don't really belong to we,
7: nothing belong to we, but that little plot become people's pride and peace. We get to keep a little kitchen garden or a little farm ground to the far side of the plantation. What we grow there, we like to barter with each other to get different food crops and sometimes we take it to markets and sell what we can. Sunday was our only day for a little respite. We have to feed ourselves on Sunday. We don't get rations, so we grow our own. Banana, planting, yam, potato. Sunday we can run our own boat and you might get a moment where you feel like a person, not
3: a slave. It was an escape from the brutality of their everyday lives. A brief restoration of dignity. A place where they could socialise, gossip, buy something to wear that wasn't what they'd been given to wear in the cane fields.
2: That was for drudgery. That was just to do the plantation work. They wanted to dress up. So there was a close relationship with them and their plot. That doesn't mean that it was hunky-dory and um, everything was fine and everybody was, you know, because you're oppressed. We must always remember that. But they were accommodating as best as they could in an untenable situation.
3: It was an untenable situation and eventually things came to a head in the Christmas uprising. The Christmas uprising began in December 1831. It involved like 60,000 to 300,000 enslaved people. It was massive. It was led by an enslaved Jamaican and Baptist preacher called Sam Sharp. A young, charismatic man with a gift for oratory. Originally planned as a peaceful strike, it became one of the biggest uprisings in the British West Indies. And according to some, it paved the way to emancipation. A step towards freedom. The Christmas Rebellion is also called the Baptist War, as so many of the enslaved freedom fighters were members of the Baptist Church, including, remarkably, some of the enslaved people from success.
4: Here's Cassie again. So one of the most sombering findings of mine for this phase of this research was This link with the Christmas Rebellion. We have discovered that six people enslaved on the
3: plantation co-owned by a funder of the Guardian took part in the rebellion that would eventually lead to emancipation. One of the freedom fighters from the success plantation who appeared in documents that Cassie found was a man called Granville. And records show he was a member of a church called Gurney's Mount. Here's Zakia. Many of us slaves
7: from Success Plantation attended Gurney's Mouth Baptist Church on Sunday mornings. There were many different churches of all denominations near Success, but us Baptists were always more fiery than the rest. One of the brethren at Gurney's Mouth Baptist Church was a man called Granville. I remember December 1831 well. For weeks there was talk among our network of churches that emancipation was coming before year end. In the neighboring parish of St. James, an English missionary and abolitionist by the name of Thomas Burchell went to England, leaving his Baptist church in the hands of an educated enslaved deacon by the name of Samuel Sharp. Though he was a young man, All of us, young and elders alike, called him Daddy Sharp because he could read and because he instilled in us a self-pride that made us go after our freedom. With Thomas Burchell on his way back from England, word spread that he had with him papers from King William IV proclaiming emancipation for all Negro slaves. When Burchell arrived with no such thing, The air was thick and tense. Daddy Sam Sharp called a peaceful general strike, demanding an end to the slave system. December was a crucial time of year for the sugarcane crop. Sam Sharp knew that the enslavers desperately needed our labor to turn a profit. It was a good time to strike. Well, being that Hanover was right next to the parish of St. James. News traveled quick-quick from Montego Bay to Gurney's Mouth and then to Success Plantation. All of we on edge. You can debate among yourselves what made Sam Sharpe's peaceful strike turn into the biggest and bloodiest rebellion in the British West Indies. But what I know for sure was what caused more of us to revolt. The man in charge of the militia was an English attorney called William Grignon. Grignon managed a few other plantations in Hanover and St. James, and was previously manager of success. One day that Christmas time, he catch a woman at Salt Spring Plantation eating the sugar cane instead of chopping it. Grignon ordered that woman to get a flogging. Grignon know that the slave who do the flogging on that plantation is the woman's husband. This caused already discontented slaves to get even more irate. Soon someone set fire to the cane piece and we decide to revolt. On December 27, 1831, slaves at Kensington nearby decide they rebelling too. Soon there was smoke rising all over Hanover. No stopping the rebellion from here. It raged for more than 10 days and covered the entire island of Jamaica. Grignard led the militia in a brutal campaign against us and the Maroons joined them too. But hundreds of us escaped to the cockpit country in the hills and stayed there until emancipation. Daddy Sharp was not so lucky. He and most of his generals were caught because they would not run away from the fight. He was tried and found to be the leader of the so-called Baptist War or the Christmas Rebellion. Sam Sharp was sent to the gallows on May 23rd, 1832.
3: Sam Sharp was hung for his role in the uprising. He went on to be remembered as an official national hero of Jamaica. Granville, one of the enslaved from success was questioned by the colonial authorities on whether his ministers
4: had encouraged him to rebel. So the thing about Granville is that he was termed, quote-unquote, a prisoner for his role in the uprising. And he was basically being questioned by authorities for his role in the uprising, but also being questioned about whether the Baptist missionaries at his church if they were involved in um, encouraging him to be part of this uprising. So we have some of his words, but again, it's, it's in a state of duress.
3: Over 340 enslaved people were killed in supposed judicial executions and carted away to mass graves. We don't know if Granville was one of those 340.
4: We don't know what happened to him after. We don't know if he was executed. Often in this type of research, you have to read between the lines. Filling in those lines is why we were looking for success. But Cassie found another clue that helped to build a picture of life for the enslaved. The church Granville attended. It was established in 1830 and it still exists today.
3: We hadn't yet been able to find success, but we were able to travel to a Sunday service at Gurney's Mount. The stone church is on top of a hill with views across the valley.
4: Now, the bishops, when they were in Jamaica, for example, or the congregations, they anytime they preached something that about marriage, for example, or about family life, the planters would get very antsy about that kind of stuff because they didn't want enslaved people to feel discontent with, with their lives. This church would have played a big role in terms of you know, cohesiveness in the community for success plantation. It would be a place where... You know, the enslaved people, they would probably have a sense of belonging or a sense of identity outside of the plantation.
3: Unlike some of the congregation who have been coming to this church for generations, Reverend O'Neill Bowen is a relative newcomer. But he takes the role that the church can play in the community very seriously.
0: This was the only church that many persons would have attended, and primarily the enslaved because um, the Baptists at that time, they um, were very interested in teaching the slaves how to read. And even today, when you interview or just talk to persons in the community, the majority of persons will say to you that the guerners Mount Baptist Church was their church. The fact that Samshap was there, you know, you know, what is it that Samshap would have heard in Bircher's teaching for him to say, uh, these shackles are not for me. And if Granville was there, even though they probably wouldn't have said to them, "Okay, fine, go and rebel. But no doubt, when you speak a message of empowerment and and personhood, you can't escape a person rising up out of that.
3: Sitting with the congregation, I felt the weight of the history and the connection to the Guardian. I thought about the names I had read in Cassie's report. ABBA, listed when just six months old, or the woman named as Nanny Grignon, described as having markings of initials on her left shoulder. ...and a large scar on her right. Had they come here, looking at the same views I was looking at... ...discussing, hoping for a life of freedom. Freedom from the system of slavery. Freedom from the success plantation. The Christmas uprising was one of a growing chain of rebellions... ...that shook the Caribbean and the system of transatlantic slavery... It was one of the factors that made the question of emancipation in the British West Indies, always in the minds of enslaved Africans, become unavoidable in Britain. The West India lobby were increasingly losing their influence on the British government. In their place, a new class of British industrialists was emerging, particularly in the northwest of England, and their eyes were fixed on cotton. In the wake of the Christmas Rebellion, Two inquiries on transatlantic slavery itself were held in Britain. These had far reaching consequences. The enslavers themselves were effectively put on trial through the ever growing number of stories that exposed cruelty, greed, and sexual violence, many from formerly enslaved black abolitionists. The enslavers tried to push back, with ever more supposed justifications for transatlantic slavery. Through a massive and sustained propaganda campaign, they spread terrible images of African people that would hold for centuries. 25 years after Britain banned the slave trade, that's the kidnapping and trafficking of people across the ocean, it was still legal to own human beings in the British Empire. But then finally, in 1833, an act was passed which saw the gradual abolition of slavery in most parts of the empire. It also required the British state to pay £20 million in compensation, a sum equivalent to billions today, but to the enslavers for the loss of their supposed property. Nothing was to be paid to the formerly enslaved. And moreover, unless you were under the age of six, enslaved Africans had to work for free for another five years as a so-called apprentice. Here's Professor Satchel again.
2: The Blacks. We're expecting freedom. Freedom from not just the shackles of enslavement, but freedom to chart their own destiny. Freedom to live within a society. Freedom to be a human being. Freedom to be free. Freedom to to be able to determine what you want to do with your life. And they thought also that they would at least get some form, I'm going to use the term loosely, compensation, that they would even get land. And in an agrarian society, land is that which makes you as independent as you can. So if you don't have land, then you're dependent. In June of that year, the Manchester Guardian
3: itself responded to the deal, stating that only a plan for abolition, and I quote... Based on the great principles of justice to the planter, that's the enslavers, as well as to the slave, none other could have satisfied the feelings of right-minded people of this country. For the Manchester Guardian, that justice effectively meant supporting the idea that the nation should be responsible for ensuring the enslavers didn't lose out. Guardian funder Sir George Phillips himself, co-owner of the Success Plantation, had previously spoken out in favour of the end of transatlantic slavery. Didn't stop him making his own claim for compensation though, for the supposed value of 108 African people enslaved on the plantation. It was rejected. But his partners were successful in a claim for the people they regarded as their property on success. In 1835, they were paid £1,904.19 shillings, which according to the most conservative estimate, is approximately £200,000 today. So what about those formerly enslaved who had not received any compensation or reparations in Jamaica? In many cases, the plots that the Africans considered to be something of their own were snatched away from them, or retained only if they were able to pay for the rent of the land. In the decades that followed, the British colonial government then took over the sale of those abandoned lands and adopted a policy that overlooked the formerly enslaved in favour of a new wave of foreign economic interest.
2: The general principle in Jamaica was that land would not be sold, would not be subdivided into small plots to facilitate a peasant economy. Because the view was that no economy could be built on small farmers, or a small farming economy. That was the general capitalist view. So it had to be sold to large entities or individuals who had the capital to make them productive.
3: In particular, priority was given to the growing fruit industry that had taken off in the decades after emancipation, where bananas were increasingly replacing sugar as the island's main export crop. The fruit companies decided that their ships were wasted on the return journey from the United States, having dropped off all the bananas. They decided to fill them with a new cargo tourists. Today, tourism is one of the island's biggest industries, employing around one in four Jamaican workers. Built on the highly sought-after coastal flatland that once housed many of the sugarcane fields, some of these hotels have what is known as a great house. These are the imposing white, wooden villas that once housed enslavers and their lavish dinners. We reached out to some of these hotels to ask if we could explore the histories of the land and buildings that are now marketed as luxury spots for weddings or other special events. They didn't take us up on it. So I asked Esther Figaro for her thoughts. One thing that has blown my mind a little bit is that plantation great houses... Oh
6: God, please.
3: ...on the whole today, the ones that are preserved are sites of tourism and a particular type of luxury tourism marketed in a way that some might argue would reproduce colonial experiences
6: right and not just colonial experiences but experiences of having servants right which is the whole point of the great house what is the tourist experience what are you coming for the experience is that you're supposed to be taken out of your normal daily life and this is especially true for working class and middle class people right You come to a place like Jamaica and you're served. Someone braids your hair. Someone sings to you. Someone talks nonsense to you. Someone provides sexual favors. Okay? Someone entertains you. Someone shows you about. Someone makes you feel special. You are served. You have received service. So this is the direct continuity, right? This line of servitude which continues from plantation to tourism, which is why many people call tourism just a continuity of the plantation.
3: Kurt Fletcher is the island supervisor for the National Workers' Union in Jamaica, which represents many workers in the tourism industry. We arranged to meet in Montego Bay, a major cruise ship port surrounded by beach resorts. I was struck by how much of the tourism infrastructure felt as though it was built by foreign visitors for foreign visitors. It was full of huge Las Vegas-star hotels with neighbouring fast-food bars and gift shops. One of Kurt's predecessors in the union movement is a name familiar to everyone in Jamaica, former Prime Minister Michael Manley.
6: In the such a in
3: the Manley was elected in 1972 ten years after Jamaica finally achieved independence from Britain. His agenda was aimed at shifting Jamaica's economy away from foreign domination and towards empowering working people. However, his time in power and the years that followed were marred by economic instability and political violence that many believe was fueled by the interference of foreign powers. The legacy of that era in the 70s was the rise of the all-inclusive hotel. It was an experience marketed on the idea that tourists would be shielded from the violence that was rocking the country. For Kurt Fletcher, this all-inclusive style of tourism feels as though it exacerbates existing legacies.
0: The jobs are very low-level jobs these days. Housekeeping, uh, bartending, landscaping, low-level accounting jobs like clerk jobs, um, people at the front desk, entertainment. Those are the jobs that are readily available um, in the hotel industry in Jamaica. The management of most of these institutions are white and the people who carry out the job, the menial work, they are black. The higher up you go, the lighter you are in terms of your skin color. Racism still exists in how we view and apportion jobs in Jamaica.
3: Kurt Fletcher also says this ultimately affects how much money Jamaican workers are able to earn.
0: I remember a situation where somebody was doing a recruiting. They were offering that person about US dollars a month with benefits, uh, health benefits, a lot of vacation time, etc. That person was not able to come and they asked somebody, somebody who I, I knew well, to recruit somebody else and she said I know this local person who has the experience and they said to the person, offer that person 4,000 US dollars offer that person half the benefits and these are the kind of things that we still grapple with today and can you give us, is there a a minimum
3: wage or an average wage that they might earn? The
0: the minimum wage is about 9,000 Jamaican dollars which works out to be roughly about sixty US dollars or about forty something pounds per week. Per week? Per week. Okay. I know people will complain that it's never enough what they get paid, but it's it's literally bad at the lower end in the hotel industry. It's literally bad.
3: I think a lot of tourists that come to these hotels that they might have potentially saved up for months and years and spent a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know, coming to and um, expect a level of service, I think they'd be quite shocked at those numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. We need to examine the benefits of, uh, the total benefit of these all-inclusive hotels. So even though we our GDP largely depends on tourism, um, I find that it could be much better for the country. While there are some attempts
3: at more locally sustainable forms of tourism, Kurt Fletcher feels that the widespread, all-inclusive model just doesn't benefit Jamaica enough. He says that a lot of the money that gets paid to foreign workers gets sent back to the country the workers are originally from. And he argues that the fact that many are paid poorly means the government collects little or no taxes
0: from them. They give these hotels a lot of tax breaks to set up here. We import things here to fill those hotels. Food. When they come here, their money stay in the property, or if they go outside, there are attractions that are either set up by these expats, so the profits still go 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 abroad. That is why that mirrors um, the colonialism uh, era, where all of the riches from sugar and from the plantation went back to England, to Spain. Now we have the same thing where all of the profits from the hotel sector don't stay here.
3: What would you say to those people who might argue that chattel slavery was this mass system which included millions and millions of Africans and it went on for hundreds of years and to make those kind of comparisons somehow undermines or devalues... The enormity of that system.
0: I would encourage them to be a little bit more flexible and dynamic in their thought to understand evolution. It still has the same psychological scars um, on the people and the end result of it is that slavery was there for empowerment and for profit to one particular set of people. And that while people are not dying and people are not chained to one space, that the confines of their mind and how they operate can still leave them in the same place, which is where we are now. It's
3: it's so steep around here. This is why it's just not what you think about when you think about farming. farming. Tourism has impacted one of Jamaica's other key industries too. Farming. I'm in the Dolphin Head Mountains, high up in inland Hanover. It's very quiet, apart from the sound of the odd goat. The Caribbean Sea stretches out ahead of us. What's this flower? Mm -hmm. It's a lily.
2: That's a pimento tree. This is the Jamaican apple tree.
3: We're with local farmers, Ray, Melody, Tony and Maisie. Up in these hills, the tourist hotspots feel far away. But the industry still affects their livelihood. The farmers were frustrated at the way the hotels not only shut them out from supplying them with produce, but also encouraged tourists to buy crafts and other goods from inside the hotel itself. They also said that hotels actively discouraged tourists from interacting with them by warning them that locals could be dangerous.
5: Yeah, the tourists, they they, they, they turn street, off, you know? You know? So that so, so so they, they, they can help yeah? the, the, the tourists to yeah. interact you the with problem. the local
2: people. But the tourists rather interact with the local people because mm-hmm. that's what they are here for. You understand? But real and truly, the system just wants everything for themselves. Yeah. So they might tell them, so them, the whole place violence, violent, the whole world violence. violent. And if <laughs> I, I if want nothing to do... If, if it you come up here, don't go to the hills, you're crazy. they with
5: this, they with... Be, there's nothing uh, like they
2: that. they market it. They
5: tell the tourists, them a lot of things. They want all of the money, you know. So that's all Jamaica is right now. Just you just got to be strong to live here, you know. You can't be you know weakling, you know. You got to be independent. So you have to do a lot of things for yourself, you know.
3: Despite this, Miss Macy says life in her plot and in their farming community offers a freedom she feels she could never have had working down in the hotels like her father.
6: My name is Macy M a s i e Macy. It's a sense of freedom in your farm. You know, and you're back with nature. You just feel nice when you're in the bush and you see the birds and whatever, you just feel free. You're your own boss, so it's good.
5: If you come up here on the street, we have a little cook cook shop right there. All of us come with something and we play music here. And then you come and Roast, bread, fruit, everything is here. That's what we do up here. We share. Hey, what's up, man? Soka, soka! thank you, sir.
3: All right. I'd spent so much of the trip thinking about the impact that plantations like Success had had on the island and on people's lives, then and now. And yet, still hadn't managed to find the site of the former Success Plantation to see what remained. It's not just about the physical remnants. Before I left, Cassie said to listen out for jumbie stories, as they say in Trinidad, or duppy stories, as they say in Jamaica, ghost stories that capture all histories. Over time, those stories may have been changed or embellished, but they're grounded in something very real, transatlantic slavery and resistance. Like I said at the start, the ghosts of this history are everywhere. And nowhere did that feel more apparent than when we finally did track down the success plantation.
5: Yes. So my name would be Las Elvieli. Then my pet name, you call me now, Brother Moses.
3: When we got to the village of success, we were told that a man called Mr Bailey was the person to talk to.
5: I love flowers so much. This one, we call it takeover. Once you plant it and you get ready to run, you just keep on running.
3: Oh wow, is it hummingbird?
5: Yes, I mean, yes, man, they, we call him Dr Bird.
3: We found him on his porch, listening to the BBC World Service on his radio. It looked
5: out over his garden. So It actually comes like a bot- botanical garden where you have plant medical things, you can drink in it. It's an orange tree. This is another species of flowers. This thing looks like papaya, you know. It's bloom pink and nice, but they don't blow you, you know.
3: Mr Bailey has lived on this land for pretty much his whole life. We asked him what he knew of the success plantation. He told us that the whole village was based on the old plantation site, including his house.
5: My father this place. He this place. As a of fact, he said? Nobody didn't here. afraid because the was slave
3: He then took us to a mound at the back of his garden, near what he said was an old gravesite for cholera victims in the plantation time. It was a distinct heap of broken rock and rubble. Mr. Bailey told us it was where Bukra or Bucky Master, a word for white man or master, was buried. Or so the story went. As a child, Mr. Bailey said he'd seen the ghost of that enslaver walking around the garden sternly with a hat and a stick.
5: Yeah, man, the big white ball, like helmet. You know where the, the master used to wear in those days? Mm-hmm. And the card tied the, the ear. I said, Mama, see the man going down there, see him there? And he goes, on in come back at evening time. mm mm-hmm.
3: Then, Mr Bailey went back to his house, changed out of the red trousers he was wearing, told us to get into some hardier clothes too, and we scrambled our way down a steep gully with slippery rocks towards what Mr Bailey called the tank.
5: You imagine if, if we have any little off coming here, you imagine this sleigh of those days? Mm. Oh my word, uh, these are bamboo.
3: Mr Bailey walked ahead, cutting a path through with a machete. He soon had to offer to make us bamboo walking sticks, or ponies, as they were once known.
5: They call them pony, in you know, days, you know. When people walk with them, they call them a pony. Pony? Yeah, they're pony, you know. i got quite one. You want one too? You skill more than him. <laughs> it
3: was not an easy hike down, and the sky was becoming ominous. A storm seemed to be brewing. The gully ran parallel to a wide green valley, and eventually we reached the flat plain at the bottom.
5: Works bottom. Yeah man, call that a nickname, we call it Works Bottom.
3: This was Works yeah, Bottom, right? Mr Bailey told us, which sounded like a place where sugarcane would be crushed and the yeah, juice extracted and then distilled. So that's flatter land,
5: that that flat land is yes, where... Yes, all of them used to be the plantation field of the key in
3: And then, all of a sudden, was the tank. A huge stone water tank covered tank, in tank deep itself. green moss and vines.
5: It's this tank inside here, over there, in the tank. You the see them grow down in the tank. Huh?
3: So we can see what looks like a kind of round circular structure made out of stone.
5: Stone, okay. they're Okay, they
3: completely covered over in moss and vines. And mm-hmm. It looked as though it had been left to the bush for the last 200 years. Mr. Bailey told us he'd been coming here ever since he was a kid and had seen the ghosts of enslaved Africans several times too.
5: You can't come down here for free. You feel the presence of them, and am go through them, you so feel the presence. And I go to bed and I see all the slaves of them. And I saw them, we call them Bucky Master, the man with the white helmet and the khaki suit and the card here. Mm-hmm. And I see them whipping the slaves of them too. Mr.
3: Bailey showed us another small tank, this time up on the slopes which you told us served what remained of the great house. We're looking at a much, much smaller tank that would have hmm? provided water for the, yeah, the great this, house. That's that
5: different from the big tank down there. Mm. Also, the, the, that and
3: suddenly there it was, two rows, 14 columns of stone covered in vines and moss. To take it all in was difficult. It was so overgrown, but you could clearly see the foundations of an impressive building that had been reclaimed by the bush. Because we weren't sure at all whether the plantation still existed or where it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we weren't sure whether it was connected to the the village of success. Yes, Mm ma'am. It was difficult to process. This was a place where so many African people had worked and lived and died. And also where brutal men like the enslaver William Grignon, who once ran the success plantation, would have enforced a climate of fear I can't believe that we're seeing the, the remnants of buildings and rooms and tanks and it means that you can just imagine it a little bit more. It was here on this exact site that sugar was grown, harvested and processed, only to be spooned into cups of tea back in Britain as men like Sir George Phillips got rich. It was the money made here from this very plantation that helped fund the Manchester Guardian. the Jamaica Tourist Board and the Ministry of Tourism to respond to some of the points raised by our contributors, but did not receive a reply by the time of recording. You've been listening to Episode 2 of Cotton Capital. New episodes will be released every Monday. In the next episode, the podcast heads to the Sea Islands in the United States. To read and watch all of the journalism and for more information on this series please go to theguardian.com forward slash cotton dash capital.
0: This is The Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree. That's amazon.com slash newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
7: A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.
1: Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket?